As Richard introduced last week, um, we're working through the five solas, or soli, um, of the Reformation. And so I'm going to be talking about sola gratia, or, uh, which is Latin for grace alone. And it's arguably the key thing that triggered the separation from the Roman church. So the word grace means unearned or unmerited favour. Grace is blessing, mercy or both that we don't deserve. But the fact that it's unearned doesn't mean it didn't cost anything. God's grace always comes at a cost. And this, this is hopefully something that's obvious to us. We don't even need to think about it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We're saved by God's grace. We don't deserve salvation, but still we're saved. We can't earn salvation, but we're saved anyway. Salvation is a gift from God. And this wasn't a new idea in the church at the Reformation. It was heavily debated in the early church, most famously by a couple of theologians called Augustine and Pelagius. Pelagius felt that God's grace was giving us the law and free will, and then we would earn salvation by good works. Augustine disagreed, and Augustine never lost an argument. Salvation is a gift from God. But why did Luther make such a big deal about it? What was going on that he would risk and actually go through excommunication from the church? And let's remember, he wasn't just excommunicated from one denomination of the church. There wasn't really such a thing as denominations at that time. He couldn't leave the Roman Catholic Church and go and join the Methodists or the Anglicans. In, rather, in Western Europe, there was just one church led by Rome. But why so much song and dance about grace? Luther made a big deal about it because it's the very heart of the Christian message. God has chosen to show favour to undeserving sinners through the death and resurrection of his son. Luther described sola gratia, grace alone, as the hinge on which everything turns. And it's hard to argue with that. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I, I feel like for this message about grace alone, I could just say amen and sit down after that. that that kind of says it all for me. We're saved by grace, not by our own works. And it's completely clear elsewhere in scripture. Romans 5 tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us so that we're now justified 
made righteous by his blood. Hebrews describes Jesus as being made lower than the angels for a while, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The word grace is mentioned in the New Testament about 150 times, but only a handful of times in the Old Testament. Does that mean God suddenly discovered grace sometime between the two Testament? No, of course not. Even though the word grace isn't quite so frequent in the Old Testament, God acting in a gracious way all the way from the beginning. In the Old Testament, Psalm 103 describes how, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And the prophet Micah talks about how the Lord will have compassion for us, treading our iniquities underfoot, throwing our sins into the depths of the sea. God is, is and always has been a gracious God. We can't achieve our own righteousness. We can only be righteous by God's grace through Christ. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. We can't do anything by ourselves to deserve it. We can only have it as a gift from God. But if it's that obvious, what was going on before Luther came on the scene? How had the church got it so wrong before Luther? Well, it's a fairly complex collection of things. The first thing we forget easily is that the Bible wasn't widely read. The printing press had only just been invented. Bibles were rare and they would have been incredibly expensive. Could someone set the budgie home? <laughs> Not only that, but the available Bibles would only have been in Latin. Educated people might have been able to read and understand Latin, but the common man or woman couldn't. And very few people could read at all, let alone read the Latin Vulgate translation that was used at the time. Scripture just wasn't readily available in the way it is now. You wouldn't go to Grapevine and have a dilemma about which Bible translation to buy this year. It was the Latin Vulgate or nothing. You couldn't choose from several different translations on your Kindle or iPad. Those translations just weren't available. So it was very difficult to challenge the church's teaching on salvation from scripture. Scripture was more or less controlled by the church. But what about within the church? What about the scholars within the church, those who did have access to the Bible? Surely Luther can't have been the first to question how we are saved. Many theologians had looked at the question, including Augustine, who, are, or, who I already mentioned, along with Aquinas and Biel, who Luther had studied extensively. But in reality, the church didn't hold a formal position on grace and works or how we are saved until the Council of Trent. Yeah, and that was in 1547, about 30 years after Luther had nailed his 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. But Luther's beliefs on grace and works probably weren't the most controversial thing. They probably weren't the thing that stirred up the established church against his teaching. There were several other things going on at the time. And the first one was the papacy. At that time, there was little to no separation of church and government. And the Pope was the most powerful and probably the richest man in Europe. Luther didn't agree with this, however holy or usually not the Pope may have been. Also, the church was engaged in an unhealthy trade in indulgences. These were religious trinkets that were supposed to help you or your loved ones with salvation. They supposedly offered forgiveness of sins 
in exchange for a contribution to St. Peter's Building Fund. And there were some very interesting items on the market. Quite, quite common ones were pieces of wood from the cross or some hay from Christ's manger. Well, more exotic and presumably more expensive, there were items like Christ's snappy or some milk from the Blessed Virgin. I think we'd have to agree that the church was stretching financial pragmatism beyond reasonable bounds. And this was happening all over Europe under the authority of the Pope. And this included in the German town of Wittenberg, where Luther taught at the local university. He was absolutely outraged by this, especially when he found out his own parishioners were being taken in by it. So we nailed his 95 thesis to the church door, theological questions about several issues such as these, and the Reformation began. Grace was probably among the least controversial questions, and the least confrontational, certainly, of those that were included in the theses. But for Luther and for us, it was the most important, because it underpins everything else. But how is God's grace revealed to us? Well, the cross is the one single greatest act of God's grace. Everything else stands in the shadow of the cross. Jesus accepted the punishment we deserved so that we could have a share in the blessings due to him for his obedience. The grace of God is manifest in the cross. That God would lower himself to taking on human flesh. That he would live his life in the shadow of, the, of, what, would he have, of what he would have to endure later. To be stripped naked and beaten, tortured by his own. Humiliated and cursed according to the law then murdered as a criminal. The only begotten Son of God went through this so we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved, so that we could have a share in what we don't deserve. By God's grace through the cross, we have a share in Christ's riches. It's just breathtaking, overwhelming. Do we deserve it? No. Can we earn it or contribute towards it in some way? No. But we gain it through the cross. But is that the end of it? Did God's grace end at the cross? We couldn't complain if it did. By itself, the cross is abundantly more than we deserve. But God's grace continues through the church. In the New Testament times we live in now, God works out his purposes through the church. The church is the main outlet of God's grace today. Don't pull a face, Carolyn. Now let's be honest, church doesn't always seem like a blessing, does it? Eight o'clock on a Sunday morning, church doesn't always feel like a means of God's grace. Most Sunday mornings in our house, there'll be lots of complaints about having to get out of bed to go to church. Oh, but I'm tired. Fortunately, Marie's much firmer than I am. (laughs) She'll say, well, you shouldn't have stayed up late last night watching YouTube videos and playing computer games. I don't want to go to church, it's boring and I don't like anybody. But of course, Marie always has the final word. You've got to go, you're preaching today. (laughs) I'm making light of it, but sometimes we all feel like we don't want to go to church. Certainly I feel like that occasionally, and I know I'm not the only one. But church is a blessing, it's the vehicle for God's grace. And we tend to think of church as something we do something we do do in response to the cross. 
We get together to worship the Lord, to thank him for his grace. But church is God's creation, not ours. In Matthew 16, when Jesus asked Peter who he thought he was, Peter replied, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response was, on this rock I'll build my church. He didn't say, believers will build their church on this rock. He didn't say, people will do church on this rock. He said, on this rock, I will build my church. Church is the grace of God. Church is from God, built by God. Church is the means of God's grace. Part of this is the love we have for each other. As we've heard over the last few weeks, as we've been working through John's letters, none of us deserve this love. We love because he loved us first. But our love, our fellowship for each other, is part of the grace of God. But there's more than that. The things we do at church impart grace to us. And the technical word for these is the sacraments. And the first one is the word. God has always accomplished his purposes through the word. The word has always been the vehicle for God's grace. Even at the beginning, when God spoke creation into being, he did it through his word. Every stage of creation begins with, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And God said, and so on. Later on, when God chose the Hebrews as his covenant people during the Old Testament period, he did it by calling Abraham. He freed the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt by calling Moses from the burning bush and then speaking to the Hebrews through Moses and Aaron. The first verse in the book of Hebrews tells us that God spoke through his prophets, but in the last days he spoke by his son. The word of God has always been the means by which God's grace has worked out. And it's most explicit in John's gospel, where God refers to Jesus as the word, the divine logos. God's grace always comes through his word. And God's word is still the primary way he achieves his purposes in the church. Through his word, God creates. Through his word, God commands. And through his word, God promises. God's word is the means of God's grace for his people. Sharing God's word through preaching was central to the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts. And it's clear from Paul's letters that he saw preaching as being central to the growth of the kingdom. The reformers saw a very clear line from the Old Testament prophets before Christ and preachers after Christ in bringing God's word to bear on his people and the world around us. All the major reformers were preachers and their doctrine was driven by proclamation of the word. These preachers had power because the words they preached were connected to the word of God. They were the means of God accomplishing his purposes in the world. And that remains the case today. When the preacher speaks to you on a Sunday morning, it's not just about communicating some information or entertaining you for 25 minutes. Satan tried to deceive Jesus in the wilderness, and Jesus used the word to tear down those lies and declare truth in its place. This is what God is doing through us when we speak to you on a Sunday morning. The word of God tears down worldly lies and deceits and builds up the reality as declared by the word of God in their place. The word of God preached faithfully is God himself speaking. 
When Luther returned to Wittenberg, five years after he'd nailed his thesis to the church door, he said these words during a sermon. I'll, I'll do the English translation rather than the German. In short, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no one by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy, papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. The word of God is powerful. God accomplishes his will through his word. The word of God is the means of grace for God's people. But maybe you're wondering, what's the connection with grace? I'm sh- I'm, I know you already know that scripture is the word of God. Richard talked about solar scripture last week. You were listening, weren't you? But where does grace come into it? How exactly is the word of God a means of grace for God's people? Well, it's about faith. Preaching is an instrument used by the Holy Spirit to create faith and point us towards the grace of God, the assurance we have in Christ. Preaching is used by the Holy Spirit to transform us. It's impossible to hear the word of God and be indifferent to it. The word was the instrument for creation by the Holy Spirit in the beginning, in Genesis 1. And the word is the instrument for recreation by the Holy Spirit now by pointing us towards new life in Christ Jesus. When we preach, it's not because we think you need a history lesson about what Jesus said and did. That wouldn't stir up faith in you. That wouldn't bring life or hope. When we open the scriptures for you, we're doing our best to faithfully bring the promise of Christ to a present reality here and now. Christ is the manifestation of God's grace come to bring salvation to a sinful and lost people and whether we read the word of god directly from scripture or hear it faithfully preached on a sunday morning it should point us towards that grace the next sacrament i'm going to talk about is baptism scripture is clear that there's a connection between baptism and grace in matthew 28 Jesus connects baptism to the church's mission as he tells the disciples to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts frequently connects becoming a Christian and being baptized. Baptism language is also often used when we talk about the Holy Spirit. But we often think of baptism as a response by us to God's grace. It's a public display of our coming to faith and giving our life to Christ. Or it might seem like some sort of spiritual cleansing to give us a fresh start with the Lord. The problem is, that suggests baptism is something we do, a work on our part. It's not. Baptism is something God does. Paul's letters connect baptism with Christ's death and resurrection. Romans 6 tells us that as we were baptised into Christ's death, so we'll be raised up into new life. And Galatians 3 makes a similar point. Baptism is clearly part of God's grace towards us, not a response from us. 
God is the agent in baptism, not the church leader or minister who pushes you under the water and says the words. But having said that, the words attached are very important. Baptism without the word is just a meaningless symbol. But baptism is significant because it's attached to the word that proclaims Christ. I'll be honest now, when I was baptised a few years ago, I wasn't 100% clear why I was doing it. In spite of Richard's best efforts to make sure I knew what I was doing, it was really just a response to God's grace on my part. But when I'd been baptised, that was when I really became alive again. That was the point when my faith and my gifting came to life, and I started to be more in tune with God. I appreciate not everyone has that experience when they're baptised, but when I hear people suggest that baptism is just a symbolic thing, or that it's just the public display of faith, I can only say that's not my experience. When I was baptised, I had a real sense that something had changed in me, that I really had died and been raised to life in Christ. So if you're here today and don't know about baptism, or if you're just not sure about it, please come and have a chat with me or Richard or Sean afterwards. Scripture tells us, and I know from experience, that we can't be all we're called to be without the grace of baptism. And if you have been baptised, even if you didn't have the same experience that I did, please do try and see it as much more than a symbol, much more than an initiation into the church. The New Testament clearly sees it as the centre of a Christian life. In his letters, Paul reminds the church to remember their baptism, baptism several times. It's a great help and assurance in life's struggles and temptations. When we're tempted or feel accused by the enemy, don't look to your good works for your defence or assurance. Look to the fact that you're baptised and belong to Christ. Your own merit won't help you in spiritual warfare, but your baptism in Christ is something to draw on for spiritual strength. It's part of God's grace pointing us towards Christ's death and resurrection and giving us assurance of our salvation. In a similar way, grace comes to us through the bread and wine we share in communion. Before the Reformation, the church believed that the priests offered up the bread and wine to heaven and that God literally transformed it into the actual body and blood of Christ. Luther didn't have so much difficulty with that idea, but his issue was that it required the priest to do something. Luther was absolutely certain that communion, or mass as it was called then, had to be something done completely by God. God had to be the sole agent in the Mass without the intervention of a priest. Other later reformers held a mixture of views on communion. Zwingli felt that the bread and wine were just a memorial, just symbols of Christ's body and blood, and that was that. And to be fair to him, it does seem to have some biblical support. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul describes the words he uses in the Lord's Supper as do this in remembrance of me. So clearly it does have a memorial aspect to it. But the, but the same letter also seems to see the supper as more than that. It reminds us of Christ's absence when he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And not only that, but Paul also says there are consequences for people who take communion in an unworthy manner. For me, that suggests it's much more than just a memorial. It's a means of grace ordained by God to build up our faith. But as with baptism, communion is just a meaningless symbol 
unless it has the word of God attached to it. But why do we need communion? What does the bread and wine do that the word doesn't do by itself? Well, I think it does the same thing as the word of God, but in a different form. And sometimes that's important. I love Marie, and I try and tell her every day that I love her. And hopefully that's a normal thing that's part of a healthy marriage. And you could think of that as an analogy of the word that I've talked about this morning. Sometimes, though, I might give Marie a gift, like some flowers or a DVD I think she might like. Now, <laughs> now that gift doesn't actually signify anything different from telling Marie that I love her. In fact, it would be, think of what it would be if I gave her a gift, but I'd never told her that I loved her. But a gift presents that same message in a different way. It backs up the message, even if the message is no different to the words, and the cost is small. And so it is with communion. The bread and wine signify nothing different to the word that's preached every Sunday, but it presents the word in a different form and reinforces it. And that's important. Ladies, Imagine if your husband didn't give you a present on your birthday. Would it be acceptable if your husband explained it wasn't necessary because he already told you that he loves you every day? I, I don't think communion is necessary for salvation, but it's something we do together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it can give us an intimacy with the Lord that the word alone doesn't give. It enriches the way we receive Christ. It's more than just a memorial. Along with the word and baptism, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace to the church. So, on that note, we're going to close with communion this morning. Um, So while the worship team are coming up, I'll just finish with a prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of your sacrifice. Even though there's absolutely nothing we did or could do to deserve it, When we were sinners, you died for us. Lord, help us to hold on to that truth and live in that truth through the power of your word, through the power of your baptism, and through the power of this bread and wine we're about to share. Lord, thank you for the fellowship we can share with you by your grace alone. Amen.